Welcome, listeners. My name is Jen Schwab, and I'm an estate planning attorney in Denver, Colorado. Oftentimes, when I'm working with a client to prepare their will, someone will make a joke about a family member killing them for their inheritance. Okay, yes, I'm the one who makes the joke. What can I say? I have a dark sense of humor. Though I truly hope none of my clients will suffer this fate, it's not an idea that's completely out of left field. It's a common plot device in books, television, and movies. Even Taylor Swift references the concept in her song, Antihero, when she sings, I have this dream, my daughter-in-law kills me for the money she thinks I left them in the will. But of course, as Oscar Wilde brilliantly stated, life imitates art far more than art imitates life. That is to say, there are many real-life cases of people murdering someone for money. Whether they're going after an inheritance, collecting on an insurance policy, recovering a debt owed to them, etc., money often motivates people to murder. I now present to you Deadly Testament, a true crime podcast that examines the dark side of inheritance and life insurance. Each episode tells the story of a murder or murders motivated by greed, envy, or revenge. From spouses who kill for money to relatives who plot against each other to strangers who target wealthy victims, Deadly Testament exposes the secrets and lies behind these crimes. Join us as we unravel the mysteries and uncover the evidence that led to justice. In my world of estate planning and probate law, there's an important rule called the Slayer Rule. The Slayer Rule says that a person cannot financially benefit from illegally killing someone. In other words, murdering someone for a payout, if you're caught, will likely prevent you from ever receiving that payout. This mostly applies to things like inheritances, but also applies to things with beneficiary designations, such as life insurance policies and retirement accounts. Our first episode covers two cases from the 1880s that were responsible for the development of the Slayer Rule. The first is the U.S. Supreme Court case of Mutual Life Insurance Company of New York versus the estate of John M. Armstrong. And the second is the New York State Court of Appeals case, Riggs versus Palmer. Mutual Life Insurance versus Armstrong. John Armstrong was a music publisher who lived in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was in need of funds for his business and in late 1877 obtained a loan from Benjamin Hunter for $12,000. That's about $350,000 in today's money. According to Benjamin, the loan was massively stressing him out, especially because it seemed John wasn't using the money to build his business, but instead was using it to live a lavish lifestyle. Benjamin was concerned he would never get paid back. Benjamin convinced John that it was a good idea to set up a life insurance policy just in case, and John agreed. Benjamin set everything up for John with the life insurance policy, and John went down to the Mutual Life Insurance Company of New York's Philadelphia office on December 5, 1877. He answered some questions about himself, did an examination, and signed the policy application, leaving two sections blank. The first, about the amount his life was being insured for, and the second about how and when the premiums would be paid. 
Later that day, Benjamin called the life insurance agency and told them the policy would be for $10,000 and that Benjamin would be paying the premiums quarterly in the amount of $138.60 per quarter. The policy was an endowment policy, which meant that if John lived until December 8, 1897, 20 years later, he would get the payout himself or if he assigned the policy to someone else to that person. On the other hand, if John died before that date, the policy payout would be paid to his legal representatives, which could mean the executor of his estate, but it could also mean someone he assigned the policy to. Benjamin also had John complete an assignment to take care of the payout in 20 years. The policy was issued on December 8, 1877, and the company sent all the paperwork to Benjamin. Later, it would come out that Benjamin had also set up two other life insurance policies on John's life, so that the total payout in the end would be $26,000, or a little over $750,000 today. Benjamin was looking at life insurance policies with payouts of more than twice what he lent John in the first place. Well, it seems the stress of that loan was getting worse and worse every day, and several weeks after setting up the life insurance policies, Benjamin had had enough and decided it was time to take some action. Benjamin owned a hardware store, and he had an employee named Thomas Graham who was having some financial problems. Benjamin had a great solution for Thomas. They would lure John out, and Thomas would kill him. For this job, Benjamin would pay Thomas $500, or about $14,500 today. And being desperate for money, Thomas agreed. Benjamin told Thomas to kill John while Benjamin was away in Virginia, giving Benjamin a pretty great alibi, right? But when Benjamin got back from Virginia, he found that Thomas had chickened out and John was still alive. So it was time for Benjamin to come up with a new plan. Benjamin knew that John had another business associate who had also loaned him money named Ford W. Davis, who lived across the river in Camden, New Jersey. Benjamin bought a hammer engraved with the initials FWD for Ford W. Davis and gave it to Thomas. He then had Thomas write out a postcard to John, pretending to be Ford, asking John to come see him in Camden. The plan was that Thomas would kill John with the monogrammed hammer and leave it behind to frame Ford. But Thomas did not have the guts to do it and lied to Benjamin, stating that John simply hadn't shown up. Benjamin, however, was a man on a mission, so he convinced John to take a ferry with him to Camden and had Thomas secretly follow them. This time, he not only gave Thomas the hammer, but also gave him a hatchet, again with Ford's initials engraved on it. Benjamin and John got off the ferry and onto a streetcar toward Ford's house, with Thomas still following behind. Once they got off the streetcar, Benjamin gave Thomas a signal and returned to the ferry to go back to Philadelphia. Thomas hit John in the head with the hammer, but lost his nerve and didn't finish the job, leaving John injured but alive in the street, along with the hatchet and hammer with Ford's initials on them. Thomas ran back to the ferry and went back home to Philadelphia. John was eventually found bleeding in the street and was brought back to his home in Philadelphia for treatment of his injuries. Yeah, back then, they didn't bring people to hospitals. It was easier to just bring them to their home where they could be treated and likely die. Because the crime took place so close to Ford's home, everyone knew that Ford had loaned John money, 
and the initials on the hatchet and the hammer were the same as Ford's initials, the police strongly suspected that Ford had committed the assault. Meanwhile, John's wife called Benjamin to let him know that his good friend John had been seriously injured. Benjamin quickly showed up to John's house and claimed he was helping John by rearranging the bandages on John's head. It turns out that Benjamin was actually reopening John's head wound and basically guaranteeing he would die of his injuries. John quickly died and the police arrested Ford for murder. Thankfully, a few days later, Thomas was riddled with guilt and drowning his sorrows at a bar in Philadelphia. He started drunkenly blabbing about what he'd done and was arrested that night. In jail, he made a full confession and told the police all about what he and Benjamin had done. The police released Ford and arrested Benjamin. Benjamin pled not guilty, claiming he wasn't even in Camden that night. Between the evidence of Benjamin's $12,000 loan to John, the $26,000 in life insurance policies, and Thomas's eyewitness testimony against Benjamin, it was a fairly open and shut case. The trial lasted 23 days, and the jury convicted Benjamin of first-degree murder after almost no deliberation. Benjamin was sentenced to execution by hanging. A week before his execution date, Benjamin used a torn tin cup to slice open his leg, nearly dying of blood loss in his prison cell. He said he wanted to save himself and his family the indignity of a hanging. Little did he know just how awful the hanging would be. The state of New Jersey was trying out a new way of hanging people. Rather than setting up a gallows with a trap door that the prisoner would fall through, the state would instead use a counterweight that was intended to lift him up from the floor upward. An eyewitness wrote about the horrific scene. There was no scaffold. He was hanged in the corridor of the courthouse with a rope reaching up into the courthouse over a pulley and to a weight in the cellar below. He was hanged at a cross-like arrangement made by two corridors populated by men from some of whom the sheriff demanded $10 apiece, and Eli Morgan, deputy sheriff to Sheriff Dobman, was to cut a little rope that held a stronger rope that controlled a 300-pound weight that was intended to hoist up the murderer into the air. The narrator was within two feet of Hunter when he was hanged. The rope was so long that it failed of its purpose and stretched, and the man went up in the air but for a few feet, then tumbled down like a bunch of wet rags. Then Eli Morgan grabbed the rope and hauled him up hand over hand and held him there until he was throttled to death. It was at least 14 minutes before Benjamin Hunter finally strangled to death. After Benjamin's death, his brother attempted to collect on the life insurance proceeds, promising to give the money to John's family. The Mutual Life Insurance Company of New York, the holder of that original $10,000 policy, refused to pay it. John's widow, Julia Armstrong, sued the life insurance company as the administratrix of John's estate, claiming that she was entitled to receive the payout as the legal representative of the estate. The insurance company argued that Benjamin had purchased the policy with the intent to cheat and defraud the company by murdering John and collecting the payout. 
the court refused to allow the insurance company to present evidence at trial intended to prove that Benjamin had obtained the life insurance policy with a plan to murder John once the policy was in place, including the evidence of the other life insurance policies Benjamin took out on John's life at the same time. The court then instructed the jury that the life insurance policy stated that the payout was supposed to be made to John's legal representatives and that it would not include someone to whom the policy was assigned, such as Benjamin. This instruction was contrary to established law. The jury found for Julia and the court ordered the insurance company to pay her the money. The insurance company appealed the case to the U.S. Supreme Court, who disagreed with the lower court's actions during the trial. The Supreme Court said that the lower court should have admitted the evidence of Benjamin's wrongdoing and that the only reason the court could have thought that evidence was not admissible was because of the lower court's misunderstanding about the effect of John assigning the policy to Benjamin and the meaning of the words legal representative. Ouch. It must be pretty embarrassing to be a judge and have the Supreme Court call you out like that and tell the world that you don't understand the law. The Supreme Court also said that had the evidence of Benjamin's wrongdoing been admitted at trial, it would have been evident to the jury that Benjamin obtained the policy with ill intent and that the policy was therefore void right from the jump. The evidence of the additional policies far exceeding the amount John owed Benjamin would have shown that Benjamin had a motive other than simply securing his loan. In its opinion, the Supreme Court stated, it would be a reproach to the jurisprudence of the country if one could recover insurance money payable on the death of the party whose life he had feloniously taken. As well might he recover insurance money upon a building that he had willfully fired. In other words, the court said, oh, hell no. This guy does not get to take out a life insurance policy on someone, murder them, and then collect the money. Just like you can't insure a building, burn it down yourself, and then collect the insurance on it. And just because Benjamin is dead now, that doesn't mean someone else gets to benefit from his bad deed either. No one is getting that money. But is that the way it should be? Remember, John was living on these loans from Benjamin, Ford, and probably others. His business was basically worthless, and who knows what was left of those loans if John was living a lavish lifestyle as Benjamin claimed. As far as we know, John's wife wasn't in on the murder, so it wasn't as if she was going to gain from her own wrongdoing if the insurance company made the payout to her. Then again, should she gain from someone else's wrongdoing? And on another note, Benjamin had agreed to make quarterly payments on these policies and had only made one payment by the time he killed John. So it seems a bit unfair for the insurance company to have to make a huge payout on a policy that was entered into maliciously and essentially unfunded. Honestly, I don't really know what's right here. I suppose if John had purchased his own life insurance policies and made Julia the beneficiary, it would absolutely be wrong for the insurance company not to pay that out purely on the basis that John had been murdered. But this is a different situation, right? John didn't take out those policies himself. He never intended for Julia to be the beneficiary of those policies. He expected that he was going to live another 20 years and that that money would just come to him and he would be, you know, sitting pretty with all of that money from the insurance policy that Benjamin had paid for. Uh, obviously, if he wanted his life to be insured and his wife, Julia, to be the beneficiary, he could have taken out his own insurance policy without any kind of a problem. So... I don't know. I think maybe 
uh, ultimately, it was the right outcome. Obviously, it's right that Benjamin and Benjamin's brother did not get the payout. But I think it's probably right that Julia didn't get the payout either. In this case, nobody won uh, except for the insurance company. Riggs versus Palmer. In 1880, Frances B. Palmer was a 64-year-old widower in Hopkinton, New York, with a large farm and considerable assets. After the recent deaths of his wife, Phoebe, and his only son, Byron, Francis made a new will on August 13, 1880, leaving his daughters, Loretta Riggs and Cecilia Preston, small legacies, and left the bulk of his estate to his then 15-year-old grandson, Elmer E. Palmer. Elmer was Byron's son and lived in the house with Francis and Byron's widow, Susan Palmer. The only conditions to Elmer inheriting were that he was underage and his mother was a widow living in the house, so she would be taken care of by the estate and would be the trustee of the inheritance until Elmer was an adult. In March of 1882, Francis remarried to a woman named Eliza Brise, but he had her sign a prenuptial agreement that said she wouldn't try to make a claim for his estate if he died before her. Instead, she would get to continue to live on his farm and be taken care of for the rest of her natural life with the income from the farm and any other assets available. Elmer knew what was in Francis's will, and he had also heard his grandfather discussing the possibility of changing the will to disinherit Elmer. Or, if nothing else, Francis may have modified the will to greatly decrease the fortune Elmer stood to inherit if the will remained unchanged. Elmer could not have that, so at the age of only 16, on April 25, 1882, Elmer took matters into his own hands and poisoned Francis, murdering him before he could change his will. Elmer was convicted of second-degree murder in criminal court and served about three years in the Elmira Reformatory in Elmira, New York. I looked into the Elmira Reformatory, and back in the 1880s when Elmer was there, it was a brand new facility. And it was different than other prisons in that it was more like military school than prison. It was called a reformatory because the focus was on reforming the convict rather than simply removing them from society and punishing them. At this reformatory, the prisoners took classes on ethics and religion, learned trades, and got to participate in extracurricular activities such as playing in a band, publishing a newspaper, and participating in team sports. The sentences were indeterminate, and the warden would get to decide whether a convict had paid his debt to society and should be released. The methods and practices of the facility have changed over the years, along with the name. It's now the Elmira Correctional Facility, and if that name sounds familiar to you, you might have heard of it as the place where sexual predator and movie producer Harvey Weinstein is serving his 23-year sentence. After Elmer's release from Elmira Reformatory, he moved to Ontario, Canada, where he married a woman named Mary Gray, and the two of them had four children, Ida, Edgar, Russell, and Percy. Elmer lived to be 69 years old, four years older than his grandfather was when Elmer murdered him. Now, as I was researching this case, I also found out that Elmer's mother, Susan, died in December 1881 at just 34 years old. 
I couldn't find a cause of death, but doesn't that seem just a bit suspicious? Almer's mother would have been a barrier to his ability to get the inheritance right away, right? And of course, with the estate taking care of her, that's less money for Elmer, yes? And let's not forget about Elmer's dad, Byron, dying young at only 37 years old when Elmer was 15. I don't know, but I think it's really fishy, and Francis's new wife, Eliza, should have been watching her back in that house. It's possible Elmer got away with murdering both of his parents. Or not. It was the 1880s. Maybe they just died of natural causes or a carriage accident or something. Who knows? So the estate spent several years in probate before it was appealed to the New York State Court of Appeals in 1889, where the court put a lot of thought into how to get to the proper decision. With the Court of Appeals, the way it works is there's usually a panel of multiple judges who are deciding the case, similar to the Supreme Court, but usually there are fewer judges than there are justices in the Supreme Court deciding a case. So anyway, uh, one of the dissenting judges in this case was Judge Gray. And in his dissenting opinion, Judge Gray argued that there was nothing written into the will that said if Elmer killed Francis, then he wouldn't get the inheritance. The will just said he would get it with no conditions other than that Susan had to hold the money on Elmer's behalf until he became an adult, and Elmer would then have to take care of Susan and Eliza. But the majority opinion of the court, written by Judge Earl, said that it didn't matter what the will said or that there was no law on the books to prevent Elmer from inheriting. The principle of it was that you shouldn't get to profit from murdering someone. For the most part, courts are not just courts of law, but are also courts of equity. And what does that mean? It means if the lack of legislation about something will cause an unjust, unreasonable result, the court has the power to do what's right and find a reasonable result using principles of equity or fairness. Another argument Judge Gray made was that Elmer would be punished twice if the court prevented him from inheriting, because he already got punished with a prison sentence for the murder and shouldn't be double punished by losing the inheritance too. I mean, I don't know. He got three years. Three years for poisoning his grandfather? Three years starting as a teenager. He got out of the reformatory at 20 years old, and then he got to move to Canada, fall in love, get married, have kids, and live a fairly long life. I'm not going to argue that any prison sentence is a walk in the park, and I know I wouldn't want to spend a single night as a prisoner anywhere. But I'm also not out there murdering people. And as far as prisons go, Elmira Reformatory just kind of sounds like the best possible prison you could go to. I'm just not sure I can get on board with Judge Gray's argument that he was really punished for Francis's murder. And let's not forget about his dead parents, who he may or may not have killed, but he probably did. He sure didn't get punished for that. Nonetheless, the majority opinion stated that the will was more like a promise than a guarantee. That is to say, it was never Elmer's money. He could have been disinherited. He could have died before Francis died. The farm could have been destroyed by a natural disaster, and the other assets could have been depleted taking care of Eliza. Whatever the circumstance, the inheritance was never actually Elmer's. Elmer killed Francis to try to ensure he would get the inheritance, but he never received it, so nothing was taken from him. Instead, he just never got to get it. As the majority stated, it's not a punishment to prevent someone from taking something that never belonged to them in the first place, so there was no double punishment here. It's like at the end of Wheel of Fortune, 
When the contestant gets to that final puzzle and spins the mini wheel for the prize they'll win if they solve the puzzle, if they aren't able to solve the puzzle, it doesn't matter that they landed on the $1 million piece. That was never their money. They didn't lose anything because it was never theirs in the first place. But what if the $1 million was on display there on the set and the contestant knocked out Pat and Vanna and just took the money without solving the puzzle? Should they be able to keep the money? I think we can all agree that would be wrong. And we would likely all be outraged on behalf of poor Pat and Vanna. The point is, just because you want it and you think you're going to get it, that doesn't mean it's yours and you just get to take it. So in the end, the court decided that the inheritance should go to Loretta and Cecilia. Unfortunately, by this time, Cecilia had died, so her share went to her survivors instead. Almer was already living in Canada at that point, so I won't point any fingers, but I'm just saying, there was an awful lot of death in that family. So what do you think? Did the court reach the right decision in this case? Personally, I think that they did. And being able to set that precedent that it's not just about what's written in the will, it's not just about what's written in the law, but you really have to consider, is the result going to be fair? Is the result going to be just? I think that that's a great precedent for the court to set. I think it's really important that that's the result that was achieved here. By the way, I want to give a shout out to Ancestry.com. It's not a sponsor, but it was invaluable to me while researching this case. There was not a single article or even case brief about this matter that gave me information such as dates of birth, dates of death, Elmer's prison sentence, or even the first names of Francis's daughters. But the vital record search on Ancestry.com helped me find all of that. What a godsend. My annual membership continues to be worth it for me year after year. So listeners, what do you think? It's been almost 150 years since these cases were decided, but people are still trying to kill people to collect what they believe they're owed. Do they truly believe they're smart enough to not get caught? Maybe you have other theories about it. Maybe you need a few more episodes of Deadly Testament to think on it some more. Stay tuned. Mm-hmm.